How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schran. Welcome in. Bienvenue. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Wow, it's like a cabaret. It's like, Because yeah. in here, life is beautiful. Life is beautiful in here. It certainly is. But I just want to make one quick announcement also about Science with Sophie. Oh. Have you heard about what's going on with Science with Sophie right now? So she um, has been uh, driving across country in a Revia electric vehicle, posting different things about what it's like to be driving, meeting all sorts of people. And she is on a cross country trip um, with Brendan to talk about the United States and where we are as a country in terms of education, learning, everything is science. So I'm very proud of her. I just want to point out to people, you can check it out on her YouTube station, sciencewithsophie.com. Please take a look. It is a pretty cool trip across. She is a born teacher. She is a born teacher. She is a born teacher. And, you know, I, I do think teachers are very often born and not made. And there's a spirituality to that as well. Mm. And with that in mind, Tom, could you please introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight we have the one and only Billy Horde. Billy Horde is an author, teacher, and trans woman possessed of two superpowers. She can sleep almost anywhere at almost any time. And she <laughs> reflexively forms an opinion on any topic within seconds of hearing a single fact. She writes, teaches, ponders, wonders, teaches a little more, and generally makes a nuisance of herself on social media. Billy is currently working on her stories and immersing herself in the joys and struggles of intentional community in Baltimore, Maryland. In addition to writing, Billy is also a history teacher and a founding editor at Pints and Prose, an online creative laboratory. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, thank you so much. That was yeah. really Welcome, Billy. We're delighted to have you here. So you're, you're calling in from Maryland right now? I am. I am, yeah. Baltimore, Maryland. How, how has that been out there in Baltimore, Maryland? Things going all right? Yeah, we had a lot of rain the other day, but I mean, it was one of those, you know, once in a however long storms we keep getting hit with anymore. But yeah, but no, we've been well. It's a, good. It's a good place to live. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely place. I was there many years ago for a child psychiatry conference. and May or may not have fathered uh, a woman by the name of Captain Boomies. Well, that's very... True, probably not. But what's going on, Billy? We're, we're talking a lot about, you know, education. Where, where are you teaching and how's that going? Okay, so I'm, I'm teaching at a uh, high school up here in Baltimore now. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I was teaching a little further south in a county until recently. Um, been trying to move closer to home. We've lived in the city. I'm a, I'm a city nut. I grew up in a city. Got tired of the suburbs. We moved back into the city. So I've been trying to get back to teaching here too. So I'm really excited to be doing that now. Um, yeah, I've been teaching mostly history for, gosh, something like 15 years now. Hmm. And, and you're writing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Take a look and see. Tell me, tell me, how do you decide where you're going with the writing? I, I want to hear all about it. Oh my gosh. I have, so I have the, the huge blessing, right. Of being, I, I'm going to call it a blessing. That's a nice spin on like, I'm not really, you know, don't have a whole lot of publishing requirements. I just write what I'm curious about. I write what I'm interested in. 
Um, I have one of those minds where um, I will just get curious about things uh, long enough to learn enough about it to think, okay, I think I get that now. And then I'll move on and be curious about something else. Um, so I don't stay too long, a little bit, uh, yeah. So a little flighty, but I, in a way that I enjoy my, I mean, my degree is in the liberal arts. It's always needs to stay wide for me. So I keep a blog. Um, I've co-authored a couple of comedy novels uh, with a fr good friend of mine, wrote a fairy tale and I write academic journal articles with my brother. So really all over the place on that one. Wow, what are the journal articles about? So we write about disgust um, and we, we coined a special term to try to, which always is a bit of a barrier to entry. The term is you contamination. So you being that Greek prefix for good. So contamination, but of a good sort. Um, we have, we, we, yeah, we are convinced that disgust is the under disgust, uh, but disgust is the under disgust. Um, That's very nice. I like that. That was yeah, very good. Right, right. Disgust is under disgust in our it was society. really good. I like it. Yeah, no, it's, I know. I, I was so excited with it. I couldn't figure out where to go afterwards. Um, I had to sit and be great. pleased with myself for a few seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But it's an under disgust factor in a lot of the polarization in our society is, is sort of our thesis. And we're trying to write about how to think about it and maybe come up with ideas about what can be done about it. Huh. I always thought it was strange that in the movie Inside Out, that disgust with its own like primary emotion. I was like, I never mm -hmm. thought of disgust that way. It's like up there with anger and fear and joy and disgust. Yeah. It's own thing. Yeah. It's one of our primary emotions. Isn't mm -hmm. that interesting? Yeah. Cause it's completely, it's sort of pre-logical, right? Like disgust kicks in before you really have much of a chance to do anything mm. else. You are reacting out of disgust, which means it's really hard to unlearn a disgust reaction towards things, which is, mm again, one of the reasons that we're trying to, to write and do work on this um, is, is trying to think about habits that people can, can work on to try to uh, lower some of their, their disgust thresholds, especially when it comes to other people. Because, you know, we would say one of the really catastrophic um, misuses of disgust, right, is that um, we start applying it to other people. Um, there's a really lovely saying, and I want to say it's Mark Charles, um, a Native American theologian and th theorist, but it, it may be somebody else who said that disgust is a great way to know what to eat but a terrible way to decide who to eat with um mm. uh, right because it does have this really vital uh you know sort of evolutionary role in helping us know what will kill us what yeah. cannot be incorporated into our body or it will cause us to become you know we'll become ill is and then disgust mm. of course is very associated with that. absolutely um, food for thought yeah. sorry oh yeah no it's uh, it's good stuff he yeah. does that yeah <laughs> yeah and and it is, it is remarkable. It is one of the primary emotions we have and absolutely right. It is a way that we have survived so that we don't continue to ingest poisonous substances that are going to kill us. So it's very, it's quick, real quick. Mm -hmm. But the application to other people. So has this been your experience as you've been growing up? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that, about growing up? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no. So I actually have a, a multicultural um experience growing up. When I was seven, my family moved to Turkey and I spent a decade growing up in Ankara, Turkey, and then mm. moved back for college. Um, and um, one of the impacts that that has, and it's actually fairly predictable from what I understand from the literature. And again, my brother is the one with the psychology degree and I give him you know, theology and philosophy and sociology talking points and we kind of work it out together. So um, I'm a little bit secondhand on the science here, but one of my understandings is that the, the broader range of you know, tastes and smells and types of people that you experience growing up, the lower your disgust threshold is, is going to be if you hadn't had that wider range, right? Like everybody's different and, and you have whatever 
you know, kind of presets you might have, but you're going to widen your, um, your tolerance against disgust um, with more and more and more experience. So the more experiences you have, the lower your disgust threshold is. And again, on a social level, that's really good. It can be a danger on a biological level on the, on a just straight up. If you accept, if you start to tolerate things that are actually bad for you, that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of socially, because we do that, this thing where we, we shift uh, from applying disgust at a, you know, to a, you know, what can I eat? What can I incorporate into my body? And we start saying, who can I incorporate into my physical community and who needs to be violently ejected from it Hmm. in a pre-thought sort of way. And that's of course where we think the problem is. So anyway, um, I like to hope that um, that multicultural upbringing uh, growing up in just a different country surrounded by lots of, a lot of different people. And it was in a very international setting. I went to an international high school there Um, helped to lower my tolerance a little bit. And my brothers, he has the same, same background that I do. Um, and we sort of try to write a little bit from that perspective as well. Folks, this is a very important, powerful discussion because it's the application of one of our most basic human emotions, disgust, which has been a way that we've survived against poisonous things, but applying it to our feeling about other people. I mean, it's still an I am, right? It's still the best we can do, but to try to understand that. So really, how do you understand this? Why? Why are people disgusted by certain other groups? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of it really does have to do with our sense of ourselves as both in, an individual, but also as members of a corporate body. Um, I, this is one of those things that in the West we sometimes downplay, but I think we downplay it only to the effect that we aren't paying attention to it, not to the effect that it stops operating on us, right? We understand ourselves to be members of a a corporate body. And we, in fact, we understand ourselves to be members of a lot of different collective bodies, right? So I am, I am a teacher. So I am one of, a, I'm one of the teachers of America. I am a trans woman. So I am part of the trans community. I am a trans woman. So I'm a part of the queer community. I am a Christian. So I'm part of, you know, I'm part of the Anabaptist group. Anyway, I'm members of all these different bodies. And I think we do have a kind of internalized sense of that. And discuss this is one of those, my brother would be poking me on the shoulder to remind me to say this, right? Is that disgust, um, we, it, we began to entertain disgust as it became a sort of magical thinking because for most of our history, we didn't understand germs, right? So what makes you sick? We didn't know where that came from and we had to trust a sort of developed disgust reaction. So it, it's not a big leap to transfer from what is a lot, you know, what is dangerous to my body, my actual physical body to what is dangerous to my corporate body. Right? That, that becomes a very easy sort of shift to make without noticing it. Um, and especially when we experience, then start to, or may, experience danger from those that we have sort of designated as foreign to my body, right? So foreign isn't automatically disgusting. It's just different, right? So you know, again, I'm an Anabaptist. There are Catholic Christians. And they're not necessarily, like, that's not, that's not going to seem or feel negative to me at all. But if I had a whole bunch of negative experiences with a Catholic person, if they started to feel dangerous, then I might be inclined towards developing something of a disgust reaction at seeing somebody I knew to be a Catholic walking into my church. That hasn't happened. Just a hypothetical, right? I, I love my Roman Catholic friends. Um, but that just, so, so you have that sort of transference, right? Um, can start to take place and we have to work out how to undo that. Uh, right. And again, these are, these are protective things. I don't for a second want to be, saying that disgust itself 
is unhealthy. It's really healthy. It keeps us alive. You know, this is during, you know, during the, during the pandemic, um, this broke out and we all weren't sure what was happening and we were very worried and we started taking precautions and all of our disgust reactions ramped up and in, in a way that was protective in a way that, you know, that, that keeps people alive. You start taking more and more measures to keep foreign and potentially contaminating things from entering yeah. the body. It's same as, uh, this is my calm background coming in, but like stereotyping, it's a thing we do instinctively that because we're not going to meet every X, Y, Z on the planet. So we form an average of a gestalt of who we've met. Mm -hmm. And so if you've only had bad experiences with say Catholics, that's going to be something to work through as you get into the wider world. But sometimes other people will do the thinking for you and form that stereotype for you. And this is where things can start to get really dangerous, right? Because there are a lot of us that get this or a lot of people that get this at either a guy, they just know it, right? Like they internalize how this works without necessarily understanding the dynamics or they really understand the dynamics. And then if you want to make a group of people reject another group, using disgust-based language is a really effective way to do that in a way that also bypasses a lot of our you know, logical and rational and careful you know, analytic faculties, right? So if I describe somebody as disgusting, if I use viral imagery, or if I use scatological imagery to describe a person, one of the effects that it will have on the, my audience is it will increase their chances of having a disgust-based violent rejection reaction to that person without thinking through it, without, you know, sort of you're, you're, it's an oversimplification to say that you're turning people into bigots without their consent, but it's trying to push in that direction. That's the sort of social pressure that it creates when you use disgust language. And this is one of those things that I noticed, especially just into my transition. And I started seeing more and more of the language that people use about my, my trans community online and how frequently anti-trans, you know, bigots work to use i mean even even the language that we have right now with you know this is a virus in our schools they are a threat to our collective body right? social um, contagion social contagion i um i literally wrap it on that you know, like they use the language of disease um and one of the effects and whether they're doing that intentionally or not one of the effects of that is to create a disgust reaction in in the audience and whoever hears that or at least to to begin to foster one create is way too strong a word right these are the sorts of things that take lots and lots and lots of repetition to start to have to have their negative effect but it does start to to have that effect and then it's condoned as well that that sort of disgust based response to someone that you know oh, yeah. not, part of, not my, part of my group one of the things that you know think about is this in-group out-group component which i think is similar language to what you're describing mm -hmm. absolutely um and do you feel that that an outgroup can easily, more easily, be dehumanized by by the in group? So all of a sudden, that other group is they're not even human, right? So yeah, we we focus. <laughs> I think a lot a lot of the analysis is focused on fear as part of that dynamic, right? When you want to dehumanize people, you cause them you you cause people to be afraid of them. Um, in some of my studies of uh, the kind of propaganda that is used to dehumanize populations in preparation for, you know, actual genocides and ethnic cleansings, there is that fear, right? But in fact, there's sort of a, um, and, you know, in the literature, there there's a, uh, a almost a paradox because you also try to make them look, um, you know, hideous possibly even pitiful, you make them look like diseased members of a population. And we're not, and again, something diseased isn't something that normally would strike us as terrifying, right? Because it's not physically, you know, intimidating in that sense of being bigger than us or more powerful than us. 
Um, only it is because that's how disgust works. So what's happening is you're playing, you're playing on two different levels. You're making people fear at a conscious level. You have a thing to be afraid of, but you're also making people feel disgusted by at a more subconscious and again, pre-rational level. You need to eject this. You need to make sure that this does not become part of us. And this is the one of my favorite songs. This is one of my tweet I've been holding on to until I can figure out how to say it right. But, but one of my favorite songs right now is uh, Shay Diamond is a, a trans woman, um, a black trans woman who has a really wonderful song called I Am America. And I like to argue that it's one of the best anti-fascist songs out there right now because it's a black trans woman asserting that I too am part of what makes up our collective body, right? And that is to somebody who has inculcated, somebody who has completely bought into the idea that trans people are variously horrible, that's a terrible, painful thing to hear. And to the fascist mind, to the uh, bigot's mind, to the prejudiced mind, that is an assertion that they either have to come to grips with, this person also is part of what makes up America, they're part of our DNA, or they're going to have a really extreme reaction to it. And it's a beautiful song too, so there's, there's always that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the assertion that I am part of this as well is one that the disgust reaction tells a prejudiced person not to not to allow that you know th- again they're going to have a pre a visceral i guess would be the best term they're going to have a visceral expul- expulsive reaction to that idea and and is that possibly because they on some level are afraid of contamination that somehow they'll be so influenced by this other group that they'll lose their own identity yeah, they're afraid they're going to lose something. And I think they define their identity. This is one of the dangers of defining your identity in terms of purity. So um, the theorist Julia Serrano has done a lot of really great stuff on this in one of her recent books. So disgust leads to stigmatizing, right? A, a group that you feel disgusted by, you stigmatize, right? And it works the other way around too. You feel disgusted by a group that has been stigmatized by society already anyway. And what's really fascinating about it, when you look at both stigma and disgust, they work along pretty much identical logics. They, they work on our brains in the same way. And they threaten what is pure. What happens is that what is pure, what is perceived as pure, becomes very fragile. And what is perceived as contaminating, that is the disgusting, is very, very, very powerful. And this is something that, again, people who are prejudiced don't like to face this fact. Um, but the fact of the matter is that if you are trying to defend a thing against just other people being present in it, your thing is pretty fragile. It's not, it's not robust. It's not powerful. Um, so that, but that is, again, you tie that disgust now to fear, right? Like that fear that we will become also that, I mean, this is the, the reason that we get that physical disgust. I cannot incorporate rotten meat into my body, right? That would, that would be, that would be bad. I would be, I would be sort of making death part of me. And that's, that can't that can't happen. So then to apply that at the population level, I can't let trans people be part of the population of quote normal genders, the population of normal people. If that happens, then I'm wrong. My whole idea of who the, of how the world works starts to fall apart. And that is both frightening and again, just viscerally, it evokes that disgust reaction. Interesting. So the this the premise then is that the folks who experience disgust and want to keep another person out of their group are actually more insecure. Mm-hmm. Oh God, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I, when, in one of our two most recent papers, um, my brother writes, and he, my brother is a cis straight guy. I um, mean, he writes really powerfully about the experience of when I came out to him. He was suddenly confronted, and he was a you know he's a good he was an ally before all of this anyway. 
but he was suddenly confronted with, is he going to allow queerness to become part of his experience of the world? And because he is somebody who has, you know, done his work and is ready to deal with all, you know, he, he, he realized, yes, absolutely. But it had to reshape his world, right? You can never be too careful in who, what you read or who you talk to or what ideas you allow yourself to entertain if you want to keep your identity pure. But pureness is not strength. Pureness is fragility. Hmm. Very interesting. It's a bubble. It's a comfort mm -hmm. zone. And we see it all the time, right? I mean, if, if you spend enough time on the internet, it's not hard to find um, people who are obsessed with purity and with keeping another population out are very easily well, triggered, right? It's really not that hard to get them to freak all the way out about just the idea of, you know, and you, and you see these, the, and this is, this is actually I think, really helpful. And I hope you're listening. Like, it makes sense of the, what, of what seems like a really extremely over the top reaction that people have. The reaction is commensurate with disgust. It's not commensurate with fear. Like, why are you afraid of that little trans girl? You aren't, you're disgusted by that little trans girl and your reaction is a disgust reaction. It's, it's vomiting, but at a social level. Which is different than fear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And visceral, really no pun intended, because it really is, you know, a gut limbic response. So at some point, it'd be great if, if you and your brother both want to come on the show. And That'd be fun. Can, can hear the, the two of you chat about this. Um, the, the insecurity of a group can really have an enormous influence on them. Has that been part of your experience? It has. Um, so yeah, so I, I think I've mentioned I'm, you know, well, I've definitely mentioned I'm a Christian. Um, I grew up evangelical. We, you know, my brother and I both did. Um, and I didn't come out as trans until uh, three years ago. Um, but I knew I was queer from, it's, it was a developing realization, um, but it's been a while. Um, and fairly early on, I went from being, again, a sort of, we would call it non-affirming, that is not accepting queer people as part of the church, to shifting my theology and thinking, no, that's not correct. And as soon as I did, uh, it took maybe a year, year and a half before I was ejected from the church I was a part of at that time. They told me, I was I was told literally that um, God couldn't work in the church because of what I believed, right? Which again- You were interrupting God. Wow. Right? I was interrupting God. God, that's like beautiful. there's a whole like, I would argue terrible theology built around this idea that if a foreign, they would say sinful element is part of their collective body, then God won't work with that body. Um, and so I had to be ejected. Our, my family had to be told that we couldn't be, you know, an integral part of that church anymore. We were allowed to, we could be there sort of around the edges, but we couldn't be a significant part of the church anymore because we were, we were corrupting the body. So very early on, like I've, I've experienced, oh, just, you know, this was probably, I don't know, over a decade ago. Or about a decade ago, um, we experienced this sort of sort of rejection and injection um, from our Christian community. But we found another one. And interestingly, the church that we are members of now and and love it. My wife is actually a pastor at our church. Um, is one that had, had were, were actively taking the steps and making official decisions to welcome queer people on the Sunday we visited. Um, so we've had both the experience of people who look at their reactions and think, okay, I see that I have this reaction and I don't want to. And I'm going to start taking actions about it. And we're going to work through this. And we're going to, I'm going to process it collectively. We're going to process it individually. And we are going to begin welcoming people that we have been taught are a threat to us, but that we don't believe cognitively anymore 
is a threat to us. We might still have that reaction and we have conversations about that and we are training ourselves out of that reaction. And, I, and again, I don't want to be so like, I don't want to be doom and gloom. I think disgust reactions are things that we can train down um, and especially train away from our social uh, reactions of, of disgust. I think that's a very possible thing. So we're both blessed to be part of a church now that has done a lot of that work and continues to work on it. Um, and my gosh, I mean, you, any trans person on the internet has experienced this. Any person who even affirms queer people is into the Christian on the internet has experienced this. One of the classic examples um, that Paul, my brother and I tell of how this works and, and the, the use of disgust in the church, there was a, um, there's a group called the Gospel Coalition that is sort of very conservative, very patriarchal, very all of that. And there's an article that came out and now about, again, maybe eight, nine years ago, where they were in fact arguing, they were urging people, they said, we are worried that our, so, so our society's disgust reaction to queer people is decreasing. You should hold on to that. There's, I mean, they, they literally said that churning feeling in your gut that you get when you encounter two gay men, foster it, protect it. You need to have that. It will protect you against sin. So it's so desperate. Yeah, it is. Oh, absolutely. Right. This is, this is, because again, this is, they're calling to something entirely pre-rational. They're just saying, hey, you can protect this thing yourself against this thing that we don't like if you foster your own prejudice and you feed it when we say fragility, like, and, and what's the other, you know, it's usually applied to is the term white fragility, which I know turns people off. People will clutch their pearls. It's like, oh, they're talking about white people. It's like, no, you're kind of getting at the heart of it is white identity is so fragile mm-hmm. is so like, yeah, I'm white. You know, I have a less mel- melanin content than, than people of the global South. But what does that really translate to? I'm a new Englander. I have Irish descent. What is white though? What is white culture? I can say New England stuff, you know, Jaws, point to that. Irish, you know, that's a culture of its own. But white, that's little more than a label, really. Sorry, you got the history teacher in me going, right? Like, but because very much so, right? Like it's a it's literally it's a label that we came up with to try to create this category of the people that we are going to treat as fullest possible humans, right? Um, because that ju- that's how we can justify treating other people as lesser categories. And it's a porous description. I, you, you talked about being Irish, right? And the Irish were not always considered white. The Italians mm-hmm. were not always considered white. Um, and white gets granted. I mean, in, in Latin America, they actually had a term in colonial Latin America for like being granted whiteness, mm-hmm. um, right? That was, a, that was a legal process that, that a person could go through because whiteness is a status category. Um, and, and maybe unfortunately, I think it, it shares a term with like, a, it shares a word with a thing that talks about the pigment of your skin. And of course, those two are historically related, but they're also doing kind of different things. Um, and so, but yeah, so it's, it's the status category of who gets to be let in and who gets to be let out. And while, especially in America, right, that it has had a huge, it is primarily defined by race and by skin tone and all the other markers of ethnicity and race. There are other elements that have played into this. Um, I, the, the classic example, and I'm a little worried about the fact of going using, using the example of the Nazis, but I'm going to use them as the example par, whatever the opposite of excellence is on this one, right? Um, one, of the, uh, one of the terms that you hear used towards queer people frequently online anymore um, is the term degenerate, right? And oh, it comes yeah. from this eugenics sort of a concept. And it is literally the idea of a person who has descended from their evolutionary level to a lower evolutionary level level, right? Hmm. It's 
it is literally a term used to say you are, it's how they explain how could you have a person who we would otherwise categorize as top category in the sense of white, not right, but in that like top social category that we have held in our mind, but they don't get to be there anymore. They, something has gone wrong with them. And queer people are one of the primary um, and pe disabled people, obviously, in the in the Third Reich. Um, were also these these targets of being accused of degeneracy of, of failing to hold to that to that standard, um, and of course this has to do with disgust because disgust is all about but these these boundary protections. So wherever you have put the boundary, you can't let anything foreign past your boundary, right? So the use of this degeneracy and the use of disgust language for people are they go hand in hand. They always go hand in hand. Um, we and and they are used to expel that which we currently do, you know we do, we currently define as less than our ideal, less than traditional, less than traditional. And again, we're afraid. We are again a phrase isn't quite the right word, but we are disgusted by them. We sent we experience them as a threat to our purity. So when I use fragility, I could also just use the language of wimpy, unpowerful. Yeah. Right? This is what I. This is what I want to say on the internet most of the time is that queerness is powerful. Queerness is beautiful. Queerness is good because when you do allow it in, it doesn't make you, if you just, if you are, you know, you're, you're a man, you're attracted to women. You're not going to suddenly stop being attracted to women. It doesn't spread like that. Right. But what it does is that when you let queerness just be part of your world and that decenters your own experience as the only allowable thing, it allows your world to become more powerful and more robust. Right. My exactly. brother explore masculinity now in new and interesting ways that reinforce him his sense of himself as a man that make him a more effective more powerful and more robust man he does not need to be afraid of being contaminated by women by queer people you know like he's actually more powerful so i don't need to use he's more of a man exactly like so, i don't need to use the language of fragility i, I could just say it's a wimp I think you're uh, I think you're familiar with this this story, but Dr. Joe, there's a, a game that came out very recently called Starfield, like a huge, highly anticipated game, and uh, it's it's a, it's a role playing game, so you can customize your character and like it's a very robust character creator, and one of the options is, and I'm talking about like a half second decision going through your character traits. Uh, are you ready? Uh, you can choose ready. your pronouns. Whoa. And there's this games gaming streamer, grown ass man, spent I think 20 minutes screaming at the camera, screaming at the developer. And I gotta say, it might have been the least masculine thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, no. because yeah, it's it's this again, it's this visceral rejection of a thing. It's this over the top, this is not logically. This doesn't make sense rationally. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't comport with the way that person wants to be perceived generally as not affected by little detailed decisions that a game, you know, the game developing company, might, developing uh, game developer might make. But it is perfectly in line with the disgust reaction. It's exactly how the disgust reaction works because feeling too much disgust makes you fragile. You are rejecting from your body. That would actually, that which would actually make it stronger, right? This is the, let's go backwards with, with the, with the development, go from the social to the physical. If you train yourself to reject from your corporate body, that, which is a little bit different from you, what you've done is you have rejected from your body that which would actually make your body stronger. It's as though we had trained our bodies to be disgusted by vegetables 
by you know the right amount of meat, by vitamins. If we were disgusted by vitamins or vitamin-containing and nutrient-containing foods, we would become unhealthy. We would become physically fragile. You know, we need that diversity. It, it, it does make me think of part of the I am, which is, you know, we all want the same thing, which is to feel valued by somebody else. Yeah. And every time you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. When you do the opposite, when you devalue someone, you become afraid that they're going to do the same to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of who we are as humans. You know, we want to be valued. We've spent millennia increasing our value by decreasing somebody else's and then are astonished that that other person, that other group, that other country does the same thing. This is part of why we have this primitive, this primitive cortisol response, the fight, flight, freeze response. Yeah. So I think, you know, what, what you're describing about your brother is how your brother has said, this is cool. I mean, I don't want to put words yeah. in his mouth, but, but incorporating others, that's what the I am is trying to do is saying, folks, you don't need to be afraid. Let's look again at why people do what they do and without judging them. And my guess is, Billy, that, that for at least some time you've been judged, but I'm curious, how does that connect with your faith? Mm. I also hear in you that, that there's this spiritual component. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's God saying, what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt you? Or is God saying, folks, you can, you can learn from Billy? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I wore my, my little Imago Dei, right? Image of God, God in yeah. Trans Colors t-shirt yeah. uh, today, uh, just because of this. I, um, I have a whole, I mean, a, whole, a whole lot of thoughts about this, right? But as a Christian, right? So my big, the, the central person for my faith is Jesus Christ. And the New Testament, the gospels are full of stories of Jesus acting in these ways that are completely counter to disgust formation. He is approaching often people who are literally sick in the stories and his presence is healing them, right? These are stories about something working in the opposite way to the way disgust works. This is why we actually formed that, that word, you contamination, contamination of a good sort, because we argue that love, in fact, is more powerful than that which is contaminating and that which is disgusting. And we all know this, whatever our religion, we all know this on a physical level. Um, the famous example of this is um, that is, is the spit example. Spit is one of the disgusting fluids. Unless you love the person who spit you're ingesting in a kiss, at which point you're not disgusted. You don't experience disgust by it. Intimacy mm. dissolves, <laughs> intimacy and love dissolve a lot of our disgust reactions to each other. So it's there. We have this, right? And, and in our tradition, Jesus is forever entering into places where everybody else is telling him this will contaminate you. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Either... Either this isn't bad in the first place. This is actually, this is, this is where the people I want to be with are. These are, these are the good people. Or in as much as there are problems here, I will make it better by being there. By loving them, I will actually cleanse, purify, improve, heal what's happening there, right? So it's this anti-discuss formation. And in fact, a lot of my work um, with my brother is trying to plumb the depths of, the, of our Christian tradition and find these different... Um, uh, mechanisms i think we called them we've called them um either liturgies or even calisthenics of anti-disgust 
that we can engage in and we can practice. You know, we talk about taking, you know, famously Christians take the Eucharist and we understand that to be the body and blood of Christ to whatever extent, you know, I, Anabaptist, we take it most physically or Roman Catholic would take it very, very literally. And at any level, that's something that if you sit and focus with it, that should incite your cannibalism taboo disgust reaction. It should, right? And we are, but we have this practice of sitting with it. And at that psychological and sociological level, when you're sitting in a community and you're activating your disgust reaction, but you're also saying, I am safe and I am with people I love, it's a beautiful way to start, if you're willing to let it happen, to start to decrease your disgust reaction towards people because you're sitting at the same time with, I am safe and loved and I love these people. And my disgust reaction is being being triggered. And so we actually argue that too often Christians take communion without, and we sort of try to gloss over it. We ignore the potentially disgusting aspect of it. We say, actually, what you need to do is focus on how gross that should be, because Mm -hmm. that's part of how it is forming and healing and helping to build community. Interesting, interesting way of looking at it. Huh? I I mean, I I think that conceptually, there may be some people who think this is a wafer thin line of looking at different things. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Yes. It was kind of crummy. But one thing is <laughs> not- We're not going to whine about it. No, thank oh. you. We're not going to whine about it. Really interesting discussion about faith and, and being queer and disgust and fear. And and, and it, it it does tie into the I am because, you know, we're influenced by these domains. But also what I'm hearing is that when, once you can just, like relax folks, keep it frontal, don't go limbic. It's okay, because then you actually can be safer. And when you're safer, you can be more creative. You don't have to worry about a saber tooth tiger. You can explore your unlimited human potential of being creative and spiritual and, and connected to the world. So Billy, you know, you talk about disgust, but you also talk about faith, about being queer. When when did you start thinking about these things? How did that happen? Oh, that's uh, such a good question. Um, these are all these sort of, you know, how do you start thinking about something is always kind of, well, it kind of is an evolving thought, right? I, you know, I've on some level understood myself to be trans my whole life. Also, it was a dawning awareness and I needed a lot of that furniture to be provided to me. And then once it was started to be provided to me, I noticed I had the, my own sort of sets of reactions um, and as they would be in co- my, sometimes my reactions would be in conflict with my values. And I was trying to understand that. Um, and, you know, and my brother is, uh, again, he's a, he is a, uh, professor of, uh, psychology over at the Seattle school. And so he and I started talking about it. My brother's, you know, a longtime friend, uh, you know, we, we did not get along as kids, but for most of our lives now, <laughs> we've been really close. Is your yeah. older brother or younger brother? Just curious. Younger brother. I'm actually okay. the oldest of, okay. the oldest okay. of four. In fact. Um, so we hadn't gotten along, but not not when he was younger when i was younger but but for a long time now we have and so he's been my conversation partner for a long time you know i I had some deep thought i really wanted to you know some thought i needed to work out i'm an external processor so you know i've said sometimes i don't know what i think until i tell you and then we both find out together um Mm -hmm. and so i would call him and we'd have these rambling discussions and we noticed that disgust kept coming up more and more as what do we think was behind this thing and for a, a lot of um younger people in the Christian world right now are experiencing what we're calling deconstruction. I'm not sure how I feel about the term, but it's, it's the one that has stuck in terms of that sense of reevaluating the faith and not necessarily leaving it. Sometimes people do and peace to them. I mean, I hope that that works out really well for them. And I think it does. Um, and some people stay, but reevaluate it and it changes. And in that process, 
And we, my brother and I were going through a version of that. And in that process, disgust kept coming up as one of these things that we noticed as a reaction in ourselves and didn't want to have. It conflicted with our values, but it was a reaction. And so he's the psychologist and I'm the philosophy nerd. And so we started talking to each other and we both brought in theology because again, that's both of our background. And so a lot of this emerged over the course of Oh, probably starting in sort of 2015. Um, and then we started noticing at the sociological level, like we started noticing a lot of these disgust reactions amping up as the country became more polarized and we saw disgust language creeping into the kind of way that the the, the two sides were talking about each other. Um, and and so that, you know, once you sort of start to notice something and it starts to, then you start seeing it everywhere. Um, and so this is sort of, this is our dawning awareness is that we started to say, I think a lot of these things are tied together. And though that that led to us looking for sources, psychological sources, sociologists who were talking about increased polarization in America. And we were a little bit disappointed to find that the focus was almost always on fear. And we wanted to hear what they had to say about disgust. And so that led to us doing more reading just about disgust, hunting down finally some some theorists and mostly psychological uh, psychologists, um, uh, but some sociologists. Um, who could really inform that and started to develop this this theory. And you know, and meanwhile, we're both having our religious, you know, our experiences in our religious worlds, um, and started noticing these these themes. And, I, and I, there is this is not to say like I'm not here to put you know Christianity as like this like panacea it will fix all disgust. Clearly, a lot of the disgust in the world is right now perpetuated by people who practice Christianity. So yeah, there's problems, right? But we've noticed that there's always been a dialogue, right? If you go all through church history, there's always been a tension of back and forth between people who want to expand what's going on, want to expand who we are reaching out to and want to expand our love for one another. And people who are operating out of a place of, I think, conjoined disgust and fear and want to shut things down, build higher walls um, and, and firm up the borders. And again, Disgust is the perfect border enforcement mechanism because it allows you to have an instantaneous ejection reaction when something, quote, foreign crosses, crosses your border and crosses the border of the church. Um, so these and again, so there's not a I wish I could point to an aha moment. The closest thing I have was the day that we came up with the term you contamination. We said it looks like there's this other dynamic of contamination of a good sort of sense that love comes in and is more powerful than the disgusting thing. And then starts to undo some of those negative effects. And so we, we coined that term because we're both giant Tolkien nerds and he talked about you catastrophe. So we said the you contamination. Um, but again, it really was a process. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think it, it is that function in human beings of wanting to be part of a group. Mm -hmm. and beginning to realize that the more you respect and value other people, the more you can trust them and they will trust you. And now you've expanded your group. Mm -hmm. And I think that faith, I think faith is the enactment of trust where, you know, we, we don't really know, but I'm going to trust. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have faith that this is a path I want to be on. Mm -hmm. no, with, with that in mind, the, the I am is saying, be, you know, because there are four domains, your home domain, your social domain, the biological and the IC domain, the way I see myself, the way I think other people see me. And we're absolutely talking about that, about the way mm -hmm. we think other people see us, the way we see other people. Because the domains interconnect, a small change in any domain can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. 
Right. So, so Billy, based on what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? So I've, I've been thinking about this and the recommendation I want to make is look for something beautiful and something different. Just mm-hmm. begin to foster the habit of looking for something that you can really enjoy, something beautiful, something striking, something fun in what is different from what you are used to, whatever that is. And I think fostering that habit starts to expand our world, make us more robust, make us know ourselves to be more robust, and it and the effects start to multiply. And, and I think that's wonderful. Could you give an example of, of how, you know, how could somebody do that today? Just can I give two examples? Yes, please. Uh, I'd love to, okay, because I want to do that physical and I want to do that social, right? Because things different can be people who are different and it can just be things that are different. Say you run, you, there's a food that you, you traditionally don't like. I'm not saying start to like the food, but find something about it. Maybe the smell, maybe just the patterning of some aspect of the food. I can't stand cucumbers, but, I, but a cross section of a cucumber is beautiful. It looks a little bit like a star yeah. um, and it looks fresh. Find something about a, a, you know, a food that you don't like the food you don't like, but find something that you do like about it. Start to see the value in it. Mm. And it starts to decrease that disgust reaction. And then at the personal level, it's the same operation. Find a person, whether it's a type of person that you've been taught to be afraid of or a type of person that you feel that you sort of fear, especially if you sense that you fear them at a visceral level, you sort of at a, on a gut level, you're kind of, they worry you. I'm not saying overcome that fear and go be friends with that person. That, that's a giant lift. But see if you can identify something about that person that you can just recognize is that is good. They have a great sense of humor. They are driven by a de- strong desire to protect those they love, whatever it is. Their, their nose is amazingly sculpted, right? They have great eyes. One thing about them that you can just notice is beautiful that you can delight in. You can be happy that that element at least is part of this world that we share. I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. It's basically seeing value in someone. When you see that value in them, that changes the way they will respond to you. And everybody now becomes a little bit safer. With that in mind, because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them in the I am through their IC domain, which has an effect on their brain. Because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. This means you control no one, but you influence everyone. Mm-hmm. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Billy Horde, what mm-hmm. kind of influence do you want to be? I want the world, I, I want to influence the world to see queerness as more beautiful. Uh, this, is, this has been my, I have a project that is going on, on, on Twitter and it's been going for months now where every day I try to tweet just a, I usually do a picture of myself, I say hello, and I say something positive about queerness because I want to help people to see that it is beautiful because I was raised to be to, to, and taught that it is not. And I spent a lot of time then being defensive of it. And it's actually fairly hard to love and delight in something that you're just defending and you're not enjoying. So I want to be somebody who makes the world see a little bit better that queerness is delightful, is beautiful, is a blessing to the world. Right. Thank you, Billy Horde. Tom? Great show tonight, folks. You have an opportunity every moment to remind someone of their value. Let's do it. It'll increase your value. Good night, everyone. Thanks.